Now, if you have your Bible open to Exodus chapter 3, I want to read verses 1 through 10, and then we're going to talk about brokenness. The purpose of brokenness. Now, Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the Lord, God, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and am given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt." Now I want to take a few minutes to review something that we've already established two or three times, but you know, repetition is not, uh, is not half bad. The way you learn the, the, uh, John 3.16 is by hearing it often and repeating it often. And I want to establish something in our mind that we might, uh, you know, just it, ought to just it might just come automatically to think about. That, that a person created uh, in the image of God uh, uh, has five senses. He, has a, he is a physical being. He has five senses. And he relates to his world in his body in the, by the senses. What he sees and hears, etc. So that he is a physical being who has world consciousness. And he relates to his world through the senses, through his body, through the flesh, through the physical part of man. We also said that man is a soulish being. He has uh, a mind, a will, and an emotion. The personality of man is mind, will, and emotion. By his, um, in, in his soul he relates to himself. He has self-consciousness. He relates to others. He is a soulish being. Mind, will, and emotion. And he is a spiritual being. That is, he has a spirit. He, in his spirit, God dwells, so that he has God consciousness. The um, body is the sight of the senses. The soul is the sight of the personality. And the spirit is the sight of God. 
and uh, it is the sight of uh, conscience and uh, the sight of discernment and it is the sight of communion where he communes and worships God and only can he commune in his spirit with God when he becomes a believer a Christian God dwells and indwells his spirit God lives in his spirit and the Holy Spirit God in the person of the Holy Spirit uh, indwells him there now with his mind and will and emotion he relates to others and to his world by his and in his body and all of these are God-given his innate abilities his talents that which he uh, by which he relates to his world but God never intended for us to live in the outer man he intended for us to live in the spirit just as in the temple there are three courts the outer court where the Gentiles even could go and there was the holy place where the priests could only go and then there was the holiest place the holy of holies where God dwelled and everything that happened in the Jewish economy took place in relation to the revelation of God in the holiest place so does does man is man indwelled by God in his spirit and all of his life is to be lived on the basis of the of the indwelling of God in his spirit he never intended for us to live soulishly or fleshly he intended for us to live spiritually now a, an unbeliever can only you know live by his by, by the flesh he you know he he the his spirit is dead a believer though can live soulishly and he looks just like an unbeliever in his lifestyle the way he lives there are some Christians that have absolutely every characteristic of the unbeliever the darkness of the unbeliever is a part of their life because they're living soulishly and they're responding in the flesh but the spiritual man is a man who lives by the Spirit and his spirit is under the control of the Holy Spirit of God so he thinks with the mind of God and he operates on the basis of God's indwelling presence communing with him in his spirit and his spirit in control and out from his spirit his body his life is lived out in the world now brokenness is the process that God uses it's the work of God to shatter our dependence upon the outer man and cause one to live in the spirit and by the spirit we talked last week about how God's process of brokenness is painful and perpetual God just keeps on working in, in our life in order to shatter the outer man and cause one to live by the spirit and in the on the basis of the Holy Spirit's control now the first thing I want us to do tonight I want us to look at some of the manifestations of the soulish life sometimes you might even refer to this as the carnal believer the carnal Christian you might find yourself tonight if you'll just listen carefully manifestations of the soulish life what are the characteristics of the life of the person who is living on the basis of his own intellect emotion and will he's living on the basis of his uh, of this God-given uh, uh, abilities and God-given abilities and talents etc number one the manifestation of the soulish life is that the person 
assumes an attitude of self-righteousness. He assumes an attitude of self-righteousness. Though often it is scarcely detectable. The soulish man assumes an attitude of self-righteousness. He claims credit for every victory. And he wants the credit for it. He wants the glory of it. So that when he accomplishes a victory in the spiritual life or in his religious life, he feels real good because he claims the victory for himself. I've accomplished this. I've done this. I've I've won this battle. I've overcome. And the emphasis is on the I, the ego. He assumes an attitude of self-righteousness. Secondly, they are moved easily. They are moved easily. On one occasion, they may be extremely excited and happy. On another occasion, they may be very despondent and sad. Their joys and their sorrows turn largely upon their emotions. And their attitude and life is is susceptible to change because they are governed by their emotions. I mean, it's a roller coaster. One day they're extremely happy. The next day they're extremely despondent and sad. Their joys and their sorrows turn largely upon their feeling and they are susceptible to change, constant change, because they're governed by their emotions. There's no constancy. There's no, there's no stability in their Christian life. It's just one roller coaster of emotion after another. That sound like anybody you know? Thirdly, oversensitivity is another trait. Oversensitivity. When they are neglected, they become angry. When they don't get the, no, the, the notoriety, the attention, when they don't get acclaim, when they don't get noticed, they become angry. They're touchy and irritable as they live their Christian or religious life. When they suspect changing attitudes toward them, they're hurt, they're sensitive. They thrive on the affection and the affirmation of other people. They just have to be constantly pumped up. Um, This... uh, this summer we spent a week in living on the, you know, living in, in the, uh, audit, uh, the auditorium of this church in Philadelphia, and most of us uh, slept on these um, uh, air mattresses. Every night it was the same, you know, job, pumping that thing up, and we'd all had these little air pumps, and we had our little feet working, and we were pumping them up. Some of us were blowing into them, you know, and getting them all pumped up. The next night it was the same. That's the way the soulish believer is. You just have to keep him pumped up. You have to keep on telling him how good he is and awarding him. And he thrives on the affection and affirmation of other people. If he doesn't get it, he quits. He gets hurt. His his feelings get hurt or he gets angry. Fourth, they're greatly troubled by outside matters. They're greatly troubled by outside matters. Persons or affairs or things in the world 
around them readily invade their inner man, their inner spirit to destroy the peace of it. He takes on the complexion of his environment. If things are going well, he's feeling fine. If things get tough, he feels bad. That is, he's greatly troubled or influenced or affected by what happens around him in his world. Number five, the Christian who thrives on the soul life is very proud. He has a great pride, ego. This is because they make self the center. Their life revolves around self. They've not lost themselves in God, so they cannot bear to be misunderstood or criticized. Oh, I'm getting down close to where we all are. They feel greatly hurt if they're laid aside in word or in the judgment of others. They have a tremendous pride. They don't accept criticism, and, and, and they don't like to be misunderstood. These are the manifestations of the soul life. These are the manifestations of the man who lives on the basis of his mind, his intellect, his will, and his emotions. Now, what are the manifestations, as you follow in your outline, of the soul that's under the Holy Spirit's authority? There are two places there. I want to give you three. Now, I know there are many, many more that, uh, you know, many that we could mention. I, I just want to mention three that are representative of, the, of, of all that you can think about. Number one, the soul that comes under the authority of God a person who lives with his soul, lives by the Spirit with the soul under the authority of God who is in the control of his Spirit is a restful one. Oh, please get that. That soul is a restful one. Have you, are you longing for the rest life? I mean, have you heard anything about it? Yeah, pick up some books and read on it sometime. The rest life. It seems to me that the theme that runs through the Old Testament into the New is that God leads us out of bondage, which Egypt represents, into the land of Canaan, which does not, is not, does not represent heaven, but the restful life, the reigning life, the victorious life. When the Spirit is in control, when the soul is governed by the Spirit of God, it is a restful life. Once we busily planned, today we calmly trust. Once we manipulated and we worked to try to get things to work our way, now we just turn it over to God. I know that's a cliche and it sounds kind of trite. Once we were flushed with anxieties, today we are like a child, quieted at his mother's breast. Once we entertained many thoughts and ambitions, today we consider God's will and we just rest in Him. That's the restful life that we yearn to have. The soul that's under the control of God is a restful one. Secondly, the soul that is under the rule of the Holy Spirit never worries for itself. Now, I didn't say it never worries. It never worries for itself. 
they trust God utterly. Now here's the third. I want to. I just uh, you know, in looking at this thing and reading and studying, I, I want to add this third because I believe it's there. The soul that is under control, under control of God, a man who lives by the by the Spirit, is a soul that desires the Lord. Desires for the Lord. Genuinely clings to the Lord. Longs to be in the presence of the Lord. Yearns for the fellowship of God. It's what the psalmist was crying when he said, My heart cries out for thee like a man in a land with no water. My heart panteth for thee, O God, like the heart pants after the water brook. I heard Joanne Sheldon give her testimonies. Shortly after, she began to, to find the spirit-controlled life after many years of serving God effectively, as a matter of fact. And the thing that impressed me most about her testimony was that when she began to live the spirit-controlled life, she just couldn't get enough of God. She couldn't get enough of the Word she couldn't spend enough time in prayer. She said, I'd get up at night and I'd get so excited when I'd find and feed in God's Word. I'd call some of my friends and I'd share with them and they'd share with me in the middle of the night. It's a, it longs for God, that soul, that spirit. It thrives on Him. It hungers for Him. It clings to Him. I've heard men give their testimony that they literally couldn't even, they literally couldn't go to work. They just wanted to spend their time in the presence of God. He was so real to them. That sounds so strange to some. I mean, I can see it on the face of many of them. Now I want us to turn to this passage that I've read and look at Moses' brokenness was to accomplish two things. Now, you know the background from your childhood of the story of Moses. His mother uh, prepared for his salvation from death, and he was uh, cared for in, in, in the Egyptian court. And in that affluence and in that supply there, he grew up. And one day, uh, he, he saw the taskmasters of Egypt uh, cruelly abusing the Israelites and he took matters in his own hands and he slew the Egyptian taskmaster you know the story and he fled for his life and he spent 40 years in the wilderness on the backside of the desert 40 years now, what was going on in that wilderness for 40 years? Now, he didn't just go into neutral out there and everything did just come to a stop. In the providence of God, for 40 years, he had him on the backside of the desert to break him. Now, watch this. Now, one time I, 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 I talked on this, this subject and, and used this illustration. A guy came in. You know, I, I never preach on brokenness, but what I don't, you know, have tremendous uh, uh, conflict with, you know, some people have tremendous conflict with it. He came in, he said, I don't under, I just can't understand that at all. What, you know, where do you get the idea that, that Moses, you know, was uh, out on the backside of the wilderness and God was breaking him there? Well, 
Why not? Um, something was going on out in the wilderness for 40 years that, that, that took place to prepare him for coming back to deliver the people from bondage. You know, let's give God credit for that, you know. And for 40 years, I'm convinced the process of God in brokenness in the life of Moses was taking place so that he could prepare him for two marvelous things. One has to do with spiritual maturity. I want to say three things about that. Number one, God breaks us because he wants to bring our spirit and his spirit into oneness. Now let me say that again. Look at here. God breaks us because he wants to bring our spirit and his spirit into oneness. What God wants to do, now watch this, he wants us to lay down our mind and our will and our emotion at his feet. He wants to us to come and surrender our intellect and our, mind, our will and our emotions to him. Now, if that doesn't happen in your Christian life, there will always be civil war going on inside of you because there, be, there are going to come times in your life that is if you're a Christian there are going to come times in your life where you're going to see a situation and you're going to reason it one way and that's going to be your way the Bible says that there is a way that seemeth right unto man the scripture said our thoughts, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways as the heavens are higher than the earth. And what that means, it means that sometimes when the way I would reason something out is not the way God would reason it out. So if I look at a situation in my life and I reason that thing out with my intellects and my understanding and it's really not God's mind, not God's way, not God's thought, then I'm going to come in conflict there with God. And there are going to be times, you see, when I, make a, when I, when I decide to do something out of my own will and my own volition, this is what I'm going to do and it might not be God's will. Let me tell you, there's no conflict like the conflict that comes when a person is living his life out in violation of the will of God. No conflict like that. You're not happy if you're not in the will of God. The worst kind of pain that ever takes place inside of a man is the pain of the conflict between his will and God's will. So I determine this is what I want, this is best for me, and so I will it out of my personality and my, my desires, and it's not what God wills, and there's a conflict. And I might encounter something that causes one emotion in me, it might not be, you know, it might not be God's emotion in that situation. So until you and I are willing to lay down at His feet our mind, will, and emotion, there's going to be a constant conflict. Now watch this. For 40 years, God dealt with Moses on the backside of the desert. You know what that says to me? 
it says God is more interested in making us and maturing us than He is in getting some things done we feel are important. I want to say that again. God is more interested in making us and maturing us than He is in accomplishing a few things that we think are important. Now what we want to do is that we want to jump in there and get it done, you know. We don't want to wait. Now time's wasting. Let's get it on. Let's get it done. You know what I've discovered? Have you discovered? I think you've discovered this also. That if you wait on God's timing and you allow God to prepare you and equip you and work in your life and mature you, when it gets time to when it gets God's timing, you can do twice as much in a, in a half as amount of time and half as much time. It's a matter of allowing God's timing to, to, to be in effect. So even though for 40 years he was out there in the backside of the desert, God was more interested in shaping him and maturing him and getting him ready for that which he was to do. All right? The second thing about spiritual maturity. Are you with me? He wants to teach us something about his presence. He wants to teach us something about His presence. Now, I don't think I'm doing a little eisegesis reading into this passage. When I read it and, and, I, and I hear God saying to Moses in that burn, burning bush, Here I am, Moses, I want to teach you something. Here I, out here on the backside of the desert, I'm teaching you something about my presence. I used to travel a lot. And I worked a lot while I was traveling. I spoke, you know, two or three times a day. And I had meetings with people as we uh, built churches. And I loaned money. And so I had to do a lot of financial research. So I, I'd get on a plane and I'd just get, you know, me a seat next to the window. And I'd just open up my books and stuff and I'd go to work. And when I'd get to where I was going, you know, I'd just close my books and get off. And sometime I would travel from here to Denver and never even be conscious of anybody sitting next to me. And I'd, you know, start to get off and I'd look, you know, and it might be somebody interesting. Some, you know, sweet little old lady or beautiful blonde, you know, again, you can't ever tell. <laughs> and, it, you know, travel for, you know, for hours and never be conscious of anybody being there. You know what? You and I live day after day. Isn't it true? Shake your head like this if it's true. We live day after day after day and never even think of God. Never even conscious. I mean, hours we can live our life and never even think of Him. Not one thought. And so God takes us to the backside of the wilderness to teach us something about His presence. We go to work in the morning and we work with fleshly people and we get there, you know, or you know, whatever vocation we're in and they make these decisions and they, they make all these, uh, you know, decisions on the basis of, uh, uh, of what's rational and what's legitimate and, and on the basis of history and choices, etc. And we just get in there and make the same kind of decisions with them. Then we get home and try to be spiritual. Or we come to church on Sunday, try to operate out of the spiritual man. Until you and I learn to walk in the Spirit, we'll never live in the conscious awareness of God. And we'll never walk in the Spirit and live in the conscious awareness of God until we're broken here in the soulish man. Number three, God wants to teach us something about a discerning spirit. He wants to teach us to have a discerning spirit. 
Now by that I mean, you remember when I said that the, that the Spirit is the sight of discernment. It's the sight of just knowing, you know. I mean, um, you, 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 you know those kinds of times when, when you've been in prayer and God just communicated to you in your spirit and you just knew that was it. That's the answer. I know it. Now, you didn't figure it out, you know, mathematically, and you didn't get any flashes of light or anything like that, but down in your spirit, you just knew that's the answer, and you just responded to it. Because the spirit is the sight of the discerning organ of man, believer, of the believer. Now, if a person is living on the basis of the soulish life, he is not a discerner. But if he's living on the basis uh, as, as a spiritual man, he, is, he, he discerns. Now watch this. He is able to discern the needs of others. He can, he can talk to people and he can discern their needs. He can discern. He is able to discern his own needs. Now watch this. A person who lives a soulish life isn't even aware of his own problems or how to solve them. How could he be conscious of anybody else's problems, how to solve them? All right, now let's look at the last, an effective ministry, and then I'll quit. The purpose of brokenness is in order to enable us to have an effective ministry. One time I was looking for a staff member in North Fort Worth and I met with the personnel committee and we sat down and uh, somebody said, well, what are we looking for? And that's a good question. What are we looking for? My answer was this. We're looking for broken people. The most effective ministers are broken in the sense of having this dependence upon self overruled by the control of the Spirit of God. Now, our usefulness depends upon our brokenness. If you don't believe that, you watch this illustration. If Moses, with all of his education and all of his affluence, could not, been, could not have been used by God, couldn't have been used by God with his education and his affluence as, as growing up in Pharaoh's court. If, if God couldn't use that effectively, who are we to think God can use us with our education and our abilities? It's not a matter of education, abilities, and affluence alone. It's not a matter of talent and, and, and skills alone. It is a matter of allowing God to take us as we have been created and under His control use us as broken. Our, our usefulness depends upon brokenness. And the reason why we get in trouble in, 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 the, in the church is that we make reasonable and popular decisions. We check out a person's talent we find out who's the best equipped, the best talent, the has the best ability. That's the person we put in a position of leadership. But usefulness is dependent upon brokenness so that the people that God uses effectively in ministry 
are the people who have come to an awareness of what it means to live by the Spirit. Bow your heads with me.